The Retrograde Approach, Episode 25, Best CLI. Yogi. Evening, Sam. How are you? You have been waiting for this episode for years. Even before we knew we were making a podcast, you wanted to do the one on the best CLI study. It's it's a funny time, isn't it? Like um, this is such an important study in our, in our subspecialty interest. And um, the first thought that goes to my mind is, uh, thank God you and I are not sitting the fellowship exam this year because this would be just money for jam in terms of trying to get some information together in terms of justifying the decisions you make for looking after patients with critical limb ischemia. Um, and given how far we've come and how much technology has advanced, such an important trial in terms of understanding the impact it has on the patients we look after. Yeah, that's right. I mean, like, um, uh, I guess, you know, critical limb ischemia is our bread and butter in terms of what we look after almost every day. We're, you know, got patients under our care with critical limb ischemia or should I say chronic limb threatening ischemia as it's now known. Um, and so, um, yeah, we've been waiting for this for a little while and, um, it's good to see it's finally here. And as I was saying to you before we started, it's told us everything and nothing at the same time in terms of, um, uh, trying to, you know, piece this all together. And at the same time, as with most of these large landmark trials, has created a degree of controversy in our specialty, um, perhaps less so amongst vascular surgeons than perhaps other interventionalists, but still an important a study to reflect on. Um, and perhaps in the Australasian region, perhaps hasn't changed uh, the paradigm of treatment for a lot of patients. However, be interesting to get your thoughts on that tonight, Sam, and um, try and digest this um, landmark trial um, as we go forward. Maybe just briefly, Yogi, um, we should just sort of touch on, you know, where we were before and, um, you know, when we say we're waiting for this and we're really looking forward to, you know, why why that is and obviously the uh, the particular point of reference is, you know, talking about the Basil study and, you um, where our practice evolved over the last few few years and then um, maybe um, especially since there was a paper published a few years ago which kind of um, uh, caused a bit of debate, as we should say, within our profession. Yeah. I guess the, the biggest challenges that we face as vascular surgeons and practices determining the best modality of treatment for patients um, and modern vascular surgical practice encompasses both open and endovascular techniques. Um, and part of our training and then practice is determining the best modality for the patient. And this is an individual-based decision uh, on a range of factors that contribute to that. These include uh, the anatomical distribution of disease, uh, the availability of conduit, the patient's comorbidities and fitness for surgery, um, surgeon-specific factors, including specialization in various open or endovascular techniques, and I guess comfort in being able to deliver those outcomes. And so in an era where 
you and I have trained where we're comfortable in both open or endovascular techniques, the question then lies, what's the best way forward? Is an endo-first approach the best thing for patients with critical or chronic limb-threatening ischemia? Or should we, as it appears with many other pathologies, should we be doing a more open-first approach um, to try and mitigate the potential morbidity and mortality associated with these complex disease pathologies in a, in a grossly unwell patient cohort? Um, historically, the, the sort of trial of reference up to this point was the Basil trial, which really looked at comparing endovascular intervention with surgical bypass with patients with lower limb ischemia. Um, and again, this was a study um, that had its flaws, especially given the era in which it was performed prior to the advent of various complex endovascular techniques, which we now take for granted, and the availability of all of this as well, plus also the availability of drug-coated uh, balloons and stents. But the sort of conclusion that really came out of all of that was that um, surgery uh, was associated with a reduced risk of amputation and death at the two-year interval. And so the large conclusion that really came out of that particular trial was that authors had concluded that angioplasty should be used first for patients with a life expectancy of two or fewer years and that bypass is preferred when when vein conduit is available. And I guess extending from that was that the, the trial was then generalised um, to the patients with critical ischemia, and particularly those who are diabetic, even though that cohort of patients within, this, within the trial were very small. Since then, we really haven't had really major um, studies that have looked at comparing more modern techniques and open surgical technique. And that's why the best CLI study uh, presents such a fantastic opportunity to look at practice as it stands in the real world today and to help determine the process of determining the best treatment strategy for the patient in front of us. Um, this is in an environment which has also met some challenges with um, the controversies with drug-coded technology in the last couple of years after the Katsanos meta-analysis. And it would be fair to say that that had a significant impact on practice globally. Um, we know from the data that there was a significant reduction in their use and a significant conversion to plain balloon angioplasty um, techniques, which has also probably played a part in the techniques that have been utilized in this study at the end of the day as well. So I guess the summary of where we stand, Sam, prior to the publication of this particular trial is a real dearth of information when it comes to what's the best approach or what's the best initial approach. And hopefully some of this data that's presented here helps with sort of formulating the discussion. Um, however, I think, as you said, whilst it provides a lot of information, it perhaps hasn't answered absolutely everything, which you can't expect of a trial, but definitely a landmark study in itself and one to reflect on. As we've discussed before we started this uh, podcast, Yogi, there's the actual study that's published in the uh, New England Journal of Medicine again, and then we went through the uh, supplementary um, publication, which has all the 
fine details as to, you know, what treatments people, patients actually received. And there's actually a lot to unpack there. And although I think um, on face value, this study does say a lot, it, there's also a lot to then consider. And I think as a specialty, we're going to be talking about this for a long time. Um, and I, I, I think there will be multiple ways to interpret the findings here. But there are also still some important messages that we still need to take home at the end of the day. I think the TLDR to all this is that patients who have a bypass still do well if they've got good vein. And we'll explore that a bit more, but I think it's very clear despite everything that's happened between basal and best CLI, there is still clearly a role for surgery in selected patients. Yeah, for sure. And I think if you reflect on your practice to date as a young consultant, that's probably true anyway. Um, and the reality is that this trial alone, let alone Basil, probably hasn't had a significant shift in your day-to-day -day practice, I, I imagine. Yeah, that's that's very fair. Um, so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how, you know, there are some vascular surgeons who really don't do fempop bypasses all that often because they really adopt an endo first approach and um, really quite big on the secondary reintervention to keep their, um, um, you know, uh, to maintain uh, patency. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how, you know, things um, evolve over the next little while as I'm, I'm sure we're going to be discussing this in conferences and meetings for some time to come. Yeah, and, and it's fair to say that this is the first publication and probably multiple publications to come for the best CLI study group as they continue their subgroup analyses and their long, I presume, longer-term follow-up for some of these patients. Um, but um, I guess as an initial first paper, this presents an incredible opportunity to discuss um, modern CLTI management. So should we just start start at the beginning, Yogi, and maybe just sort of break down, you know, the study design and um, what we sort of thought about how the study was um, prepared and how it was executed? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the best CLI study has been published in the New England Journal of Medicine, as Sam mentioned. It was published on the 7th of November, 2022. Um, and I think since then, at all major conferences, the three principal investigators have taken quite an active role in uh, presenting the data sets, but also answering questions from colleagues around the world in terms of some of the um, some of the results from the um, paper itself. Um, I know I was in person at Verve last year, where all three PIs attended um, electronically. Um, and that stimulated quite a significant discussion in a very multidisciplinary room um, of interventionalists of, from various uh, subspecialty interests. But the um, overarching element here is that the best CLI study looked to compare open versus endovascular procedures um, in the management of best CLI and particularly its choice as the initial treatment option. Um, in when you think about the range of arterial disease presentations, surgical risks that these patients present, and also the availability of uh, autogenous conduit for vein bypass, together with 
individual patient preferences and physician factors um, such as uh, skill set, training, and treatment biases. And so the conclusion at the end of the day, and Sam, you and I both know that there is significant variability in the uh, options for management. As you mentioned, some surgeons are much more endo-heavy versus others. Um, but the question then becomes, how does this affect uh, outcomes in patients with CLTI? And so the aim of the best CL uh, CLI study was to determine whether endovascular revascularization was superior to surgical revascularization in patients with CLTI caused by intra peripheral disease. And in that self, that is an incredible goal for such a trial to undertake. A quagmire, as you like to say, Yogi. A, a, an incredible quagmire and one potentially not quite resolved, but uh, a significant thought in terms of how it affects you know, the thinking behind a really unwell group of patients. So Sam, from a study design point of view, how did they go about this? Um, they basically, um, I think that probably the, the, one of the strengths of this study is they divided um, the study into two main cohorts. So they looked at patients who had a good conduit and um, generally we define as someone who's got an adequate long saphenous or great saphenous vein in the um, limb in question and they then randomized those people to either surgery or endovascular treatment and then they had cohort two and cohort two were basically patients with inadequate vein so they might need a composite graft or a prosthetic or um, did they include arm vein in that i think they probably did and then they then compared um, that group to um, endovascular treatment as well. Um, we should probably also quickly just define what they um, used as a definition for CLTI in the study. So basically patients with peripheral vascular disease with um, ischemic rest pain or um, a, a non-healing ischemic ulcer or gangrene. And in the, in the supplementary um, document that they provided with the study, they sort of break down the toe pressures and things in, involved which I think on average was in the 30s. Well, whilst they don't, uh, just to answer your question there, Sam, whilst they don't specify arm vein in their supplementary tables, um, they do talk about bypass with alternate vein and bypass with composite vein, which would only make me think that that's possibly what's happened. Yeah, so they probably do include arm vein in that, don't they? Most definitely, I would have thought. So yeah, so so patients were then randomised uh, within those two groups, and then they uh, looked at how they performed over um, forty eight months. Although there is some in the Kaplan Meyer sort of uh, tables or graphs, they do sort of show results out to seven years. But um, within that um, forty eight month period, that was the main uh, study length, and then they had their primary outcomes and um, secondary outcomes, which we can maybe talk about. Yeah, and I guess just before you proceed, one of the interesting things about this trial to sort of make it real world um, was the fact that um, investigators had to um, sort of determine equipoise uh, in terms of the treatment paradigm for a patient's disease presentation. Um, and so that required having a, an expert um, in open surgical practice, that'd be a surgeon, as well as um, 
interventionalists that uh, were considered experts in endovascular technique. Um, and I guess that would result in some degree of heterogeneity across the landscape um, in the uh, six countries that were, sorry, five countries that were involved, uh, the US, Canada, Finland, Italy, and New Zealand. Um, but this would mean that the, the interventionalists would have to agree that either option was suitable um, for the particular patient in question uh, prior to embarking on the randomization itself. And so when it, when it sort of when it came to outcomes, the particular outcome of interest, uh, their primary outcome was a composite of major adverse limb events or death from any cause with a major adverse limb event defined as either an above ankle amputation of the index limb or a major index limb reintervention. Um, and then they had secondary efficacy and safety outcomes, um, which were the occurrence of a major adverse limb event at any time or post-operative death within 30 days, minor reinterventions, or and or a, a major adverse cardiovascular event. Now, um, uh, in reference to basal, one of the main, as we sort of allude to, one of the main limitations with basal um, was the method of intervention. Uh, employed for endovascular treatment, so that it was plain balloon angioplasty. And obviously, the main counter argument to basal over the last few years has been, well, how often do we just plain balloon things these days? Um, and so, uh, when we look at this study in particular, they did then look at the um, different treatment modalities um, also employed in the endovascular group, which I think is worth mentioning, Yogi. So, um, interestingly, um, and I think this will probably be one of the main criticisms of this uh, study moving forward. What there were, there was still a very high proportion of people getting plain balloon angioplasty alone, um, and you know we discussed this, and we probably think that that was in the midst of um, this study being performed. The Katsanos meta-analysis was released, where there was probably well, not probably there we know that there was a, a reduction in drug-eluting technology uh, used um, through the study period. But um, interestingly, um, you know, we do see a variety of techniques used, um, bare metal stents, drug-eluting stents, atherectomy. Yes, and I think whilst um, the full gamut of potential techniques were utilised, uh, cannot be understated the impact of the meta-analysis at that particular point in time. Saying that though, this is the real world experience at that point. So yeah. in many ways, I still think it's a very fair reflection of practice um, because the question still that would be, that would need to be answered is what's, what modality are you going to first? Yeah. Um, I mean, just roughly Yogi, do you have any idea what proportion of, patients who you intervene on you'd plain balloon alone um it's a non-binding non-binding yeah. answer yeah it's it's yeah so um i might be alone in this sort of thought process but um the reality is the patients that we look after are multi-level um have multi-level disease um yep. in my practice the, my paradigm for SFA disease um, would be 
predominantly using drug-coded technology, particularly balloon angioplasty with drug, um, with yep. rescue stenting as required. Um, however, for below-knee uh, work, um, I don't use any drug-coded technology apart from drug-coded stents. Yep. Um, so my, my choice there would be um, balloon angioplasty with a plain balloon followed by rescue stenting with a drug-coated stent if required. Okay. Would that reflect what you do, Sam? Um, so I guess we've opened a bit of a can of worms here inadvertently, but um, um, so for long lesions, I would generally stent, and I think you probably you know debated what a long lesion is, but anything over 10 yes. centimetres in, in my hands would mostly end up with a, a stent, usually a drug-eluting stent. Um, yeah. For focal stenotic disease, also I shouldn't even say focal, but for stenotic disease, I generally prefer atherectomy with a drug eluding balloon. Um, yeah. And then for tibial disease, um, very heavy on plain ballooning, and I think probably why that is is you know um, I use the balloons quite frequently as catheters across lesions, and so not often then exchanging to a drug balloon, um, and then rescue drug eluding stenting for anything that looks a bit nasty at the end of the case sam that was not controversial at all okay well we'll wait we'll wait for the angry 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 hate, hate mail later <laughs> but that's my that's my general <laughs> strategy but yeah um, i mean i think I, and i think that's fair i think um let's be honest in inguinal balloon angioplasty alone uh just is archaic. I think um, I think the the problem with any study in this area is that the patients are so different. Like, hey, you can never compare yes. apples to apples, you know. Yes. And um, that's why you know at the end of the day, a lot of this will come down to individual preference and um, what you can do in your hands. But um, I think you know no two patients have really exactly the same pathology. And I think we're gonna, we're going to be arguing about all this stuff for years to come. But interestingly, I'm, I also just wonder, did they define um, what adequate conduit was in the in um, in this study? I don't know if we if we saw that, but, um, you know, for me personally, I say anything more than um, three millimetres in diameter, which I think is probably what most people would say as well. It wasn't defined in that much detail, but it just, it was defined in the nature that the, interventionist was happy with the conduit in, in itself yeah okay are you generally a three millimeter yeah i mean that's right so um I, there are circumstances where or segmental um sections of vein which may be under three which i'd still consider or evaluate on the table before yeah. dismissing um and there are going to be circumstances where um i would look to proceed however have alternate conduit available or look to harvest alternate sites of vein if I wasn't happy. But um, I, I agree. I think the sort of surgical dogma with vein bypass has always been um, vein greater than three, but also being mindful of the fact that varicose veins not not also a great conduit. However, an alternate if if required. Yep. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm pretty similar three, or I would consider using something a bit smaller, uh, non-reversed. So as it tapers down, you, you're going to put the, the small bit at the bottom, the good bit at the top. 
Yeah, and I think that's uh, I think that's not an unreasonable approach. I uh, I'm a much more aggressive reverser of vein than perhaps yourself. Not a big fan of the valvular tone, but um, I will use it if I need to. Yeah. Anyway, I think we digress a bit. If we're going, to, your favorite operation, as we know, but Yogi is a fempop bypass. So we could spend all day talking about how to do fempop bypasses. So maybe maybe we'll leave it at that for the moment. But uh, uh, maybe next time we can talk about how to use the valvular tone. I didn't mean to, huh? Come at me. <laughs> I didn't mean to be disparaging. Okay, let's let's not not, not insinuating you don't know how to use a valvular tone. Yeah, I know you know how to use the alveolar tome, Yogi. You can cause damage with it. Let's let's move forward. So, um, yes. uh, so the primary outcomes that I think um, there's a bit of a difference here between the primary outcomes of the study and the secondary outcomes of the study. But the primary outcomes, do you want to, do you want to summarize them for us? Yeah. So I guess perhaps we should look at it in the two cohorts um, alone, Sam. So cohort one, um, and this is the cohort of patients who had ad- adequate uh, autogenous conduit for um, inferring uh, little bypass. Um, now, these were patients recruited between August 2014 and October 2019, uh, of which there was a total of 1,434 patients um, who were identified to have a single segment of GSV that was appropriate for bypass, uh, resulting in the group uh, being randomized in a one-to-one technique. Uh, and then in the end, 718, they received surgical treatment and 716, they received endovascular treatment. And as Sam mentioned, the, this cohort as a group were followed up up to seven years, but with a median follow-up of 2.7 years for the surgical group and 2.7 years for the endovascular group. Amongst the patients who underwent open technique, um, the majority had a femoral popliteal bypass, uh, followed by femorotibial or pedal bypass, and then Sam's favorite operation, a popliteal tibial bypass or pedal bypass, um, with 85% of these procedures being performed by a single segment of great saphenous vein. Um, in the endovascular group, the majority of patients had interventions in the uh, superficial femoral artery territory, followed by the popliteal artery, and then the tibial and pedal arteries. Now, an interesting consideration in this cohort is that the vast majority of interventions were performed by vascular surgeons, 73%, in fact, followed by 15% by interventional cardiologists and 13% by interventional radiologists. And one of the criticisms here is that the technical success of the index procedure was 98% in the surgical group and 85% in the endovascular group. So that's a 15% rate of failure um, with the index procedure amongst endovascular first techniques. So before we move any further, maybe Sam, did you have any comments about that? Um, I mean, I think that's a pretty realistic rate of failure. Um, I mean... um, you don't always get through to the lesion that you're trying to get through. It's too long. It's too calcified, etc. Need to come back another day. Consider retrograde um, uh, approach, etc. So I, I, I would have thought eighty-five percent is pretty reasonable. But I don't know if you think otherwise, Yogi. Or you've seen or heard some commentary that says there's something wrong with that number. So the one of the leading criticisms um, from interventionalists that are not vascular surgeons. 
and vascular surgeons with a predominant endovascular bent would make the argument that contemporary studies evaluating endovascular vascularization would consider failure rates greater than 5% extremely high. Now, I, I agree with you, Sam. I don't necessarily think that the rate of failure was exorbitant. Um, I, I guess, um, you know, the, the comments that the PIs make is that this is the real world experience. Um, there's no fudging here. This is exactly what happened. And perhaps we all have slightly short-term memories when it comes to our success with endovascular first techniques. Okay, on the flip side, what do you think about 90% success for open? Yeah, I, that's real? I mean, I think um, um, I, 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 yeah, so I think in practice, 98%, if you had a 98% rate of success with all with your bypasses, um, you'd be like me. Everyone would love bypass graphs, but that is clearly not You're the pretty case. good, right? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, that, that's a fantastic outcome. If you have a 2% failure with your bypass work. And the reality is that um, there's so much running against you with a firm pop bypass graft and um, that, you know, there's enough issues with the peri-procedural and post-operative care that can lead to um, issues, whether they're technical or patient related, that then contribute to their failure. So um, it's a very high rate of technical success. However, um, given that 73% um, of interventionalists were vascular surgeons and there's significant input from their, from this cohort, it perhaps goes to say that, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a highly selective group of people that are involved in the study. But, I mean, are we saying 98% for fempops, femdistals, femtibials, fempedals, poppedals? Yeah, we like are. Us. Yeah. And... and- that's right. And so, um, I mean, at the end of the day, though, this is in the context of fantastic conduit. And, that, and I think, that's, I think that's, that's, the, that's the discerning factor. I, I think the patient selection must have been very particular, right? Yes, to a point. Surely, but, surely but, you would have picked cases that were going to be, if you want for people in cohort one, surely there would have been... But you got to remember they were randomized with two interventionalists who determine equipoise between the t- two techniques. So, yeah, okay. so these are patients who could have easily also had an end of first approach if they wanted to, but um, had an open procedure. Now, we don't know the extent of disease or the length of disease for any of these patients. We don't know actually the anatomical um perspective from that point of view and that may come out yeah. of time but um i do agree that a 98 percent technical success rate with pedal bypasses is an incredible outcome looking at all comers yep all right um so I, just while we're sort of talking about um cohort um cohort one what did you what were your reflections on the um the uh, major adverse cardiac events between surgery and endovascular? I guess the primary outcome perhaps may be the best place to start with that. It's just a major adverse limb, uh, limb events or death from any cause, which um, 
occurred in 302 of the 709 patients who had a surgical bypass and versus 408 of the 711 patients who had endovascular intervention. So there was a, a higher rate of major adverse limb events or death in the endovascular group, um, which is essentially then the, which has then driven the outcome in this paper uh, suggesting yep. that a surgical first strategy was associated with a 32% lower risk of the composite endpoint um, compared to endovascular technique. Um, the, I think the other thing of interest in this group is that this is a extremely unwell group of patients. So in the, in the, yep. in the cohort one, the major adverse cardiovascular events occurred in 56 of the 1,434 uh, patients um from randomization through through to 30 days um but by the end of follow-up there were 578 patients that had a major adverse cardiovascular that's 40 percent of that cohort at some form of major adverse cardiovascular event the only thing that suggests to me is that this is a very very sick group of patients with diffuse cut you know atherosclerotic disease yeah so four four percent within the first basically four percent within the first month yeah, and forty percent by the end of the study. Yeah, which I think is also a very important conversation when you're talking to this patient cohort uh, in terms mm. of preparing them for the sort of risks associated with the procedure, but also the post-operative concerns that also then exist as well. Yeah, and I think I worked out by looking at the Kaplan Meyer that roughly the seven-year survival is around fifty, forty to fifty percent. Yeah, and, and I think we looked at these curves just before we kicked off that really it was mm. um, the composite endpoint kicks up for surgery at that seven-year mark and then if you break it down to major adverse cardiac events or death, it's really death at that point that tips surgery a little bit higher at that seven-year point. Yep. I mean, it's really comparable to some cancers really when you look at the five to seven-year survival, isn't it? Yeah, and, and I mean that's what's frightening i think about this cohort of patients we take for granted how much we can subject them to operative interventions in the context of limb salvage but it really is an individualized treatment paradigm because of how unwell they are absolutely um i guess that's one of the other things to just mention like it's not really clear there is something in the supplementary document about who they excluded because i thought they were too basically not up for an operation but i wasn't really clear on who they excluded or based on what parameters um i just yeah obviously there's going to be some factors you know i presume like significant cardiac failure significant ischemic heart disease and unstable angina might be some of them but um it's it's not really clear who they excluded from surgery and um, I did think that the 4% cardiac event rate within 30 days was a little on the low side. So, yeah, I, I guess just to take you back for a second, so the exclusion criteria is in the supplementary documents that you mentioned. So the exclusion criteria for the BCLI was presence of a popliteal aneurysm greater than two centimetres in the index limb, life expectancy of less than two years, yeah. excessive risk of surgical bypass. Yeah, so that's what um, I mean, like what's what's excessive risk? Yeah, I mean, that was that's 
that's a subjective discussion, isn't it? Um, and and you've got to presume that there's some degree of uniformity across the spectrum when you think about modern surgical practice and yep. consistency and anesthetic technique, right? Yep. But just to just to complete this, um, patients that are planned for an above above ankle amputation on the ipsilateral leg within four weeks of the index procedure, active mm-hmm. vasculitis, Burgess disease, or acute limb threatening ischemia. Mm-hmm. Any prior index limb infringement or stenting or stent grafting associated with significant restenosis within one centimeter of the stent or stent graft, unless occlusion or restenotic site is outside the intended treatment zone. Um, any of the following procedures performed in the index limb within three months prior to enrollment, which I think would be a huge difficulty in this yeah. cohort of patients, given the majority of them are reinterventions. Yeah. Um, any form of open surgical inflow procedure with within six weeks prior to enrollment. So aorta bifems, yeah. exilofems, aliofemoral, thoracofemoral, which is something I know that you love, Sam, an ephemerofemoral crossover. Did, did it once, never again. Uh, current chemotherapy or radiation therapy, con- contraindication to iodinated contrast, pregnancy or lactation, um, any form of investigational drug for PAD, um, participation in another clinical trial 30 days prior, or prior enrollment or randomization in the best CLI. So all a relatively um, comprehensive exclusion yep. group. Yep. Um, and then the in the supplementary document, for those who wish to read on, uh, quite an extensive dis- description of adequate arterial inflow. So all of this, which I think is important to consider, um, especially when you're trying to think whether this is reflective of the real world or not. Yep. So, Sam, should we move on to cohort two and your thoughts there? Yeah, sure. Um, so, co- cohort two, essentially, we, you know, we're now talking about um, the patients with um, inadequate GSV conjugate, and we've obviously had a bit of a discussion uh, about that. Um I guess um, we had 197 receive surgical treatment and 199 receive endovascular therapy. Um, interestingly, now in this study, the technical success was 100% in the surgical group, which one, one would have thought would probably be less because, you know, we're now talking about composite vein, you know, arm vein, splice vein, etc. cetera. Um, but obviously, again, very good open surgeons potentially involved i'm not sure but yeah 100 technical success seems like a bit of a red flag to me and similarly surgery uh with the endovascular endovascular group uh 86 80.6 percent uh technical success um of the 37 early cases of technical failure in the endovascular group 26 percent underwent surgical bypass within a month and in the surgical group, there was a mixture of fempops, femtibs, uh, popliteal, tibial, or pedal bypasses. <clears throat> um, now, talking about the alternative conduits, so there were 48 bypasses involving alternative conduits and 119 bypasses uh, involving prosthetic conduit. Now, obviously, as we know, Yogi, um, despite its limitations, generally speaking, it is easier to place a prosthetic uh, conduit in uh, most cases. Um, and in 90% of cases, the surgeon um, um, did find uh, a segment of great saphenous vein that was suitable. So I'm not sure. I presume that those those may have crossed over into cohort one by that stage. 
but a small group. I think so. Whilst technical success perhaps is not well well defined in this, technical failure is defined. So the definition for technical failure was in the setting of surgical bypass is defined as the occlusion of the bypass graft or failure to achieve a patent bypass graft at the completion of the procedure. So Mm. as long as the procedure was, as long as the bypass graft was running at the end of the procedure, it was considered a technical success. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Every minute after that, don't know. Yeah, I mean, look, that's. Um, I mean, how do they prove it? Was there an angiogram? Was there an ultrasound, etc.? Um, I would argue that if the patient patient's graft includes in recovery, that is definitely not a technical success. But anyway, um, so the primary outcome of major adverse limb events uh, between these two groups <clears throat> was essentially very similar: forty two point eight percent. Um, in the surgical group and 47.7% in the endovascular group. And and as a result, um, this is where they go on to make their big second claim, which is in patients without a great saphenous vein for conduit, uh, the overall efficacy and safety outcomes in both open and endo were similar, um, which then emphasises the need to individualise um, patient level decision making in patients without an appropriate bypass conduit and i think to be honest with you cohort two perhaps reflects more of the patients that we now see than cohort one would you well yeah and so actually what we are struggling with more and more these days is the fact that you don't have enough conduit length to do any form of open revascularization yep and um, that that in itself poses significant challenges. Exactly. So I guess the question I I put to you now, Sam, is: Have we safely navigated this tri- this trial, or is there more to talk about? I think there's going to be a lot to talk about for some time. Um, obviously, this is a, an area that's going to be plagued by a lot of personal dogma and points of view, and people will have their own practices and surveillance strategies and that's how, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of well in my hands that you know um, no one who has a long SFA stent with me ever runs into trouble because I get them early I re-intervene and keep things running and they avoid any major operations um, yeah I, I think probably the real only take-home message that that personally I've I've um, taken from this is that it confirms to me the fact that patients with good vein do well. I don't think anyone can really dispute that. Now, you can argue, well, it's it's very morbid, you're doing big surgery, you know, you make cuts everywhere, there's wound infection. I acknowledge that, but from a um, technical standpoint, for limb salvage, if the patient is medically suitable, the patients do well. And I think that's pretty yep. hard to argue based on everything we've got thus far. I think you, if you then try to make an argument for endovascular superiority, that you then get into a grey zone about, well, you know, what's the rate of intervention? What are you treating? Like it's it's a, it's a much more difficult argument to make. I guess the last thing, which, which I'm not clear on, which I know has been discussed in other studies, is... Is there a problem with the endo first approach? I.e., 
do you make things worse for yourself later and make the outcomes poorer by doing an SFA stent first and when the stent fails, then do the bypass? Yeah, which wasn't really looked at in this particular study and perhaps was the sort of take-home message out of the Basel trial. Yeah. I think the... I think that I think the um anecdotal evidence for that's probably limited to be honest with you Sam. I think yep. even from your own practice how many times would you have taken an endo first approach and ended up having to do some form of open revascularization? Um yes, there is, you know, potential risk of intimal injury and dissection which may affect your you know, technical success with the bypass. But yep. in this cohort of patients uh, who are unwell, who do not um, do well longer term anyway, mm. it, it, it probably doesn't play as, a, as big a role as we perhaps one thought, once thought. And um, perhaps we're also a bit more cognizant to that. So I know through my training constantly as you do the diagnostic angiogram for an end-to-first approach, you're constantly thinking about how are we future-proofing this person? Yep. And I yep. think we're doing more and more of that, to be honest with you. Yep. So I think we're a bit smarter. I think we're a bit more adaptable to that environment. And I think Australasian surgeons, vascular surgeons, um, the technical armament and skill set makes us capable of being able to pull back or to go, um, you know, full full steam forward, depending on, the individual patient-related factors. And I think that's what makes our yeah. breed of surgeons in this part of the world a little bit different perhaps. Yeah. Um, just I guess the other thing to quickly mention is some of the limitations perhaps associated with the best CLI trial. Yep. Um, there are, as Sam has mentioned previously, there are some selection and operator bias within the study um, because whether patients were eligible or not was really determined locally and varied according to the site and individual investigator. Mm-hmm. Um, there was significant procedural heterogeneity um, and the reliance on the judgment of individual operators in defining successful revascularization. Um, women didn't actually play a significant sort of component of the subject cohort, so recruitment of women play also is a consideration and as we've talked about the katsanos meta-analysis did come out in the midst of all of this and the and during the recruitment of the this patient cohort and as such perhaps played a role with the use of drug eluting technology um in that so yeah there are some limitations to it but i think the authors of this trial should be commended for really trying to put forward a real world experience for the management of CLTI in the environment that they faced and irrespective of the criticisms across the board from the types of proceduralists, the rates of success and the procedures performed, um, you can only assume that it was reflective of what was happening then and there. So we, we have to take that with merit and Sam, if you had to summarize this whole podcast in two sentences, hit me with your best summary. Oh, now you put me on the spot, Yogi. Uh, surgery is a good option in selected candidates, but with with single segment great saphenous vein as conjure. Correct. And in patients who do not have 
an adequate conduit um, for open vascularization, efficacy and safety were equivalent. Agreed. And so herein lies the conundrum of where we stand, which is we know no much we don't know anything more than when we started this whole discussion. So as I said, it's told us everything and nothing at the same time. Um, probably should also make note, Yogi, that we did notice that there was significant um, uh, funding for the study. So um, I think they received a grant of approximately $27 million, but there's sort of fairly substantial uh, support from industry as well, and including several notable societies. But um, it's all in the uh, appendix of the, of the paper that was published and... Um, you can have a look at that for yourself. Um, any final reflections, Yogi, before we wrap this up? Uh, my final thoughts are um, as individual practitioners, uh, I think we're, we're, we're expected to critique the evidence that's out there to do the best for our patients. The best CLI is an advancement of the evidence that we had on the area of um, lower limb um, critical limb ischemia and as such um, should help shape your first sort of intervention for a patient when presented with this problem. Um, however, at the end of the day, the other thoughts um, come down to your individual techniques and skill sets, but also patient-related factors that then um, add degrees of complexity to the decision-making. So the summary is, I'm not sure we know any more than when when we got started, but hopefully this is part of the journey of many more things to come in this field. And um, and hopefully in a few years' time, Sam, you and I will have more information to enlighten ourselves with. And also what you're saying is, despite us ragging on Basil for the last few years, it seemed like there was some, there was some pearls of wisdom in there after all. Yep, pearls of wisdom. And I think it's reflective of what we see in practice. Yogi, see you on the next one. Thanks, Sam. Have a good one.